Nice. Thanks for coming. Hate to throw a party, nobody show up. My name is Judy, and I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Hester and Miguel and the committee for inviting me here. They've also allowed me the freedom to meet with some family members and friends because um, I had moved recently, and that's part of my story. And so I was kind of able to have my cake and eat it too this week, and I want to thank you guys for that. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about reminding them I was going to be here this weekend to speak. And they were making a big production over, and I said, you know, God does for me what I cannot and sometimes will not do for myself. I had been asked to speak um, several years ago in Rio Dosa, New Mexico. It's a beautiful area. And I got there, and it was my first time to be, you know, asked to go somewhere to speak beyond, you know, city limits. And um, I got there, and they had me as Judy Inn from Las Vegas. I lived in Reno, and it's Judy F., so... I was very humble when I spoke. <laughs> Thanks, A. But before I start, I would like to know, because I like to cover my base, how many members of A do we have in here today? Ooh, okay. Yeah. If I say something that upsets you, please call your sponsor after the meeting, okay? <laughs> I learned not to color what I'm saying because of who's in the room. I'd like to qualify myself as, an, as a member of Al-Anon. I'm not an Al-Anon because I grew up in an alcoholic home. I'm not an Al-Anon because I married an alcoholic. I'm not an Al-Anon because you can't swing a dead cow without hitting four alcoholics. I'm an Al-Anon because I go to Al-Anon meetings and I have a sponsor and I work the 12 steps with Al-Anon. That's what qualifies me as an Al-Anon. Just real briefly, I did not grow up in an alcoholic home. I certainly related to the other speakers I've heard today and thank you for sharing. Um, I'm one of the few, and I just don't hear it very often, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. And I'll tell you, it was last night, you know, we, we, heard, we hear it say in A, and we certainly hear it in, in our own room, that more will be revealed. I had this little moment of like, ooh. I came to realize last night that alcoholism touched me when I was about two weeks old. And that's a great, great deal part of my story. But aside from that, I, there, was no, there was social drinking in my home growing up. It was not an issue. It didn't become an issue until I married into the disease. I grew up in a stone's throw away from here, born and raised in Imperial, Imperial Valley. And we would come to San Diego for playing and school shopping. And, you know, so when I, Hester called me and said, you'd like to go to San Diego, I'm like, yes, you know. And so there's, no, there's not a whole lot of excitement down in Imperial. You know, you go watch carrots grow in Hopeville and, you know things like that, but you know, it, was, it was a very quiet, what I would call semi-normal childhood. The way it started for me, however, is I was actually born in Brawley. We had my parents and, and I already had two siblings who were living in Imperial. For those of you that aren't familiar with the territory down there, Brawley's about a 20-minute drive. I have no idea which direction anymore. I haven't been there forever. And when I was two weeks old, they were on their way back to the hospital to make payment on me, because back then you got to do that. And the hospital, Pioneer Hospital, is right on a curve as you come out of Brawley. And they were going in, so they were making a left to go into the hospital. And the story has it, a drunk driver T-boned them. My mother was holding me, no seatbelts back then. Brother and sister in the back seat, they're one and a half, two and a half years old, they're bouncing around. My mother and I were ejected from the vehicle. And I got flung off in a ditch. She damn near died. She spent three months, three months in the hospital. My dad was 24, 25 years old. He already had three children, couldn't find me. 
finally found me about 300 feet away in a ditch. I was scraped up, but apparently okay. So yes, I thought, fell and bumped my head. <laughs> Blonde, you no, know, gee, I'm, I got problems. Um, there were good family friends of ours that now live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that were living in that same area at the time. So he called them, and they picked up my brother and my sister that night. And the next day, they picked me up in the hospital, released me. And my mother spent three months in the hospital, severe injuries, head injury, internal injuries, everything. When she got out and went, got back home, it, like I said, it had been three months. My brother, who was two and a half, he remembered my mother. But for those of you that are parents, know that when your children are that small, their memory span is about equal to that of an aunt. They don't, I mean, their memory, they don't remember. My sister had forgotten my mother. So the people that had kept us, that's who mom was, you know, to her. Now, they, had, they already had five children of their own. They had got, each gotten married with their, own, with their own kids, an already merged family. So for three months, they had eight children, and all in the age of seventh grade down to newborn. And I was always dressed up, apparently. It looked like I was ready to get my picture taken. I always wondered why I was a little fussy sometimes about clothes after that. So when my mother called and said, okay, bring me the kids. Now, the woman who had us was named Judy. That's who I was named after. She said, are you sure? She said, yeah. Now, they already knew the whole story by this point. My mother had no memory of me because at that time she had no memory of having me, of going nine months of pregnancy, absolutely no memory. They told her she had a newborn. So then when, they, when she was handed me, you know, and I didn't even get the story until I was like 21 years old, and which is just a few years ago. There was no connection. Now, I didn't know this for many, many years. I knew that there's something not right. I was never treated any different. I have, there's a fourth child after me. There's four of us, two of each. I was never treated any different, but yet I always felt different. And looking back on it now, now knowing what I know, there just wasn't that mother, mother-child bond. Not her fault. That's just the way it was. Never could figure it out. I remember saying to her, I was probably, you know, my memory of being young, I don't know. I apparently was there, but don't remember. I remember being mad at her for something, and I just I was and I remember stomping my little feet. And I was probably I'm going to guess six seven, and I just remember saying, "You don't love me like you love the other kids," and I'm sure that just ripped the heart out of her, because I'm sure part of it's like there's still no connection, and yet it's still a child of hers. So she made me a shirt later that says, "Mom loves Judy," and I'm the only one got one. You know, I have an older sister, and it's always if she gets one, I get one kind of thing. So. That's how alcoholism, alcoholism originally touched my life. It took me many, 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 many years to find that out. Once I grew up and got out of school, I couldn't wait to get out of the valley, you know, and I, I left. My sister by that point had moved to Reno. And my parents, my dad had been transferred to Edwards Air Force Base in Lancaster from Mojave Desert. So when my job ran out after I got out of high school, it was time to book it. So I moved to Lancaster. And I got lived there for several years until I turned 21. And then it was time to make another move because my sister called me and said, what are you doing? I'm saying, no, no, trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. She said, why don't you come to Reno? I'm like, why not? Had no bills, had a set of wheels, let's go. Took the caps and I hit the road. And I, I'd never been to Reno. <laughs> my dad had to give me the map and say, go north. And uh, it was fun. I, I spent the next 21 years in Reno. And I met him a year later, after I moved there. And, you know, we did the little typical party in high school and that kind of stuff. I never hung out with people who did drugs. If they brought the drugs out, I left. Um, I, had a, I saw too many things happen, even at a young age. So I, just, I chose never, never to hang around that. I didn't, know what, I didn't know what to look for. I just knew that if it didn't look right, I left. Okay? 
Once I moved to Reno, and I met him a little over a year later at the rodeo. Now, in Imperial, there's a PRCA rodeo that comes through Brawley, but we never went, because my dad always went as a kid. He got bored of it, so we never got to go. So rodeo was fun. Those big cowboys and got them leather things on and, mm-mm, you know. <laughs> chaps, you guys, chaps. So I went to the rodeo with a friend of mine I'd gotten to know at work, and she was a local rep for Black Velvet, who was one of the rep, one of the sponsors of the local rodeo and this PR State circuit. So all the big names were in. And she had me set up on a blind date with a doctor. I'm like, cool, this works, you know. So I'm hanging out with all the local Black Velvet reps, and for those of you that aren't aware of it, you must be blonde to be a Black Velvet rep. Okay. And so I had the prerequisite cowboy hat, got the boots, but I'm not a rep. I'm just hanging out with them. I don't think anything about it. Now, I didn't know this story from uh, my, my soon-to-be husband until quite a few years into sobriety because he wouldn't own up to it. Um, I will tell you that when I met him, it started the whirlwind road. What a, what a trip. What a trip with this man. He saw us when they, the Reno Rodeo is a very big thing now, but at the time they were kind of working on a rinky-dink budget. And they had, you know, one of those mobile trailers you set up for an office, set up for the hospitality center for all the rodeo members, the rodeo participants, and all the people that got to take advantage of the perks. And so they had them set up. You have like a four-stepper up and coming in one door. It's one direction. Get your drinks out. It's all free booze, anything you want. And so I'm standing in the mud and the horse stuff and, you know, everything, and I'm just talking to these girls. I don't have a clue that somebody's pegging me to be a black velvet rep. And he came, and apparently he went through the, um, he's a 6'3", was 6'3", 240, 50-pound, big guy, okay? And he went through, got his little drink, and he came out, and he's kind of surveying the crowd, he tells me. And he sees me with all the other blondes. And he knows all the other ones. They've all got boyfriends, husbands, whatever. I'm a new one. So he just horned in right in there. And so he went to take a step out, because he's just going to be Joe Cool. Well, the guy that's bigger than him, his name's Andy, moved the steps on him. And he didn't know it. So he went to take a step out of a four-stepper, into the mud he went. To this dad, he gets given a year's worth of salary to see that. And so he picked you out. Andy came along, picked him up by his back belt loop, which just amazes me, and dusted him off and sent him on his way. Okay, so he kind of horned in on the conversation. We were off and running from that moment on. And it opened up a world that was so new and exciting to me. You know, I'm just a young, dumb little country girl from Pearl, you know, and just didn't, thought I knew something, just didn't have a clue. And rodeo became a very special time for us. We even planned our wedding around the rodeo, okay? And we were engaged once, broke it off, got engaged again, got married. That became a pattern, not to not realize it at the time, of course. I had a fairly decent job. I was in the real estate industry and uh, moving up. Now, when I met him, now somebody was talking today, and I honestly don't remember which one it was. I think it was this morning, that once I heard his story, and I will never forget it. My conscious thought was, this poor man it didn't have a chance. He needs me. <laughs> and it was a very conscious thought on my part. He did have a rough childhood growing up, and that's his story. But he truly just started out with everything against him. And I knew that he needed me because I had all the advantages of growing up in a nice, you know, home that we had everything we needed, sometimes what we wanted, had our schooling. We had our parents' support and love to the best of their ability. You know, this poor man didn't have it. When I met him at that weekend, his, the mother of his son was staying with him and his girlfriend and all the kids 
you know. And I'm like, and I didn't see anything wrong with that. I'm still wondering. That bump in my head apparently affected me more than I'd ever thought. And I just thought, well, just go, we got to get these people out of his life, you know, just clean them out. And um, it took me a couple of years, but I succeeded. Once I, set my, my, once I set my side on a goal, I don't give up. That also has uh, attribute has become a deficit, and sometimes it's still an attribute. We finally did manage to get married, and I got to tell you what happened with that. Once we were engaged a second time, and my parents were very angry with me because they'd already met him by this point, just knew that this was a huge mistake, but they wouldn't tell that to me. My dad did come to Reno for the wedding. My mother would not. It was a poor excuse she had, and I thought, fine, whatever. I didn't. Again, sometimes, you know, what appears to be a bad thing turns out to be a good thing. That lack of connection wasn't that, it created not that big of a deal for me. A week before, now, what my husband would do when he would go drinking is he wouldn't drink at home where I could keep an eye on him. He'd have to be out in the thick of it, okay, right where all the action was. And there was one place in particular called Bishop's. You know, it was kind of on a part of town that was becoming questionable. And in the back room, they did things that were highly illegal. And I always knew, I took great pride in going, I could find him if I want him. You know, I just refused to go look for him. But when he would go drinking, he would be gone. He wouldn't go drinking and stumble in at 3 o'clock in the morning. He would be gone. In Reno, you can drink 24 hours a day. And so it would always be two days, three days, whatever. So we went through numerous, you know, several years of this in and out. And, and I'd been living up at Tahoe when I first met him and finally got to come back down to Reno. And a week before the wedding, had it out with him one more time, same story, different thing. You know, and I remember going in, and we were in my apartment, and I remember going into my bathroom, and I shut the door, and I stood there with my fist clenched, which has also become a pattern, and said, God, if I'm supposed to marry this man, give me a sign. He didn't drop dead, so apparently I was supposed to marry him. So the wedding went through. Now, now we had our family friends who had taken care of me when I was a newborn, by this point had moved to Albuquerque. They were coming to Reno for the wedding. He had... If you guys ever done this, you ever limit the alcoholic, like, one thing, just do this one thing, you know, just one thing, you know, and I had, he had one thing to do, you know, first of all, he wanted to have his bachelor party the day before the wedding, I'm like, I don't think so, okay, because I already knew alcohol was a problem, but I figured it was because he didn't want to behave, I heard that term earlier today, too, and he was just being irresponsible, so I could show him, and so I said no. So we went round and round and round and round, and uh, it was like three days before. And his best man, um, I told him, I said, I hold you responsible, okay? And I knew he was going to drink. I have a problem with that. I had no problem with him drinking. It was just stop it at a reasonable hour. Well, ask an alcoholic to define reasonable, okay? <laughs> so I said, all I need you to do is to show up by 9 o'clock on this morning because the Albuquerque people will be in. That's all I need you to do. And he had one tour that afternoon. He didn't make it. You know, surprises, surprises. So, of course, I want to hurt him. And um, then he had to still make it to the tuck shop. And my dad was coming into town. I'm like, I'm going to kill him. You know, we're just not going to make it through this wedding. And I went to the tuck shop to finish up the final business and have a friend with me. And I asked this poor girl who's running the cash register. I said, has by any chance the groom shown up? You know, and I'm sure I was just a picture of, you know, wedded bliss to come. <laughs> and I hear this, hi, honey. You know, and he's just reeking. You smell him before you see him. And he's stumbling. I'm like, you're driving? He goes, it's okay. It's okay. You know, I had called his best man early that morning and said, where is he? The wife wouldn't get him out of bed for starters because he was passed out. And I said, get him up. She said, he's asleep. I said, don't make me come over. You will regret that. 
I said, get him up. So he dragged himself to the, to the phone. He said, you know, I said, where is he? Where'd you lead him? He said, spats. I'm like, I'll get you later, you know, because that was across the road from Bishop's. And so he, he, he shows up. I don't know. I don't have any clue. He only got one DUI in his drinking career. It absolutely astounds me with only one. And so I leave because I'm so disgusted. We're going to go get ready to get married. And I'm going around one corner. My dad is coming in the other corner, around the other side. And I don't know this. And they end up meeting and idiots drunk. We still did it. We still got married. And the funny thing about it, he was, such as it was, sober for him, I am the one that got drunk after the wedding. I hadn't eaten. We, we were off and running. We truly were. And it was still fun. There was a lot, there were a few good, good, few, few good years in there. And in, um, a good friend of his, another one, his best man ended up moving back to Boston, and he ended up hooking up with somebody else that he'd been drinking with a long time, got married. And that wedding was the end of the drinking career. That was the very, that was the end by this point. He had already been diagnosed with potential liver problems, and he said, oh, the doctor just has to come back, and I'm like, okay. You know, I tried to control his drinking by limiting what he could drink when we were at functions. Now, he knew that I was extremely naive, didn't have a clue about a lot of things. I didn't know about the extracurricular activities because I didn't know the signs. It explained a lot later, you know, like, how can you stay up for four days? How do you do that? You know, and he, um, there was, there was already, we already had enough things going on. There was lots of signals, lots of bells and sirens, and I ignored them all because he could always explain his way out of it because he always found what I considered enough truth to the situation where I would bite the whole story. Okay, and when it came time for this last wedding, we were, I was I was just about done. I just couldn't take it anymore, and I don't have to go detail you guys. We've all been there, done that. Bought the T-shirt. Okay, so he of course disappeared after the bachelor uh, party, and he finally calls me and he says, "Come get me." I said, "Where are you?" Now I knew where he was, and he told me, and I'm like, oh, "I need a guard to get over there. I'm not going there by myself." And I went and picked him up, and he just, he was so bad by this point, he would just reek. Got him clean, he got himself cleaned up, because I was already, I'd already been punishing him. You know, I treated him like a petulant two-year-old, but I could always justify how I could treat him. And he didn't put up much fuss, because it wasn't worth it to him. So, did the wedding, he ended up disappearing again. We had a big fight, he split, you know, whatever was going on, and I thought, I'm done. And this is about the end of January. So I thought, when he comes back, I'm throwing him out. I'm done. Now, what I haven't told you, because I forgot, because I, I, I always forget this part, middle of January, I had been working in the, the escrow industry, and my company had been sold. We did such a good job with the company and the office that L.A. sold us. So we went through the rehiring process, and I decided to stay with the company that was coming in. At that time, I could have written my ticket anywhere in town. So that was a year prior. So within that next year, everybody who had come in from the company that got sold was fired for one reason or another. Now, I got fired also, okay, and that was an extremely lucrative job at the time. Now, I blamed a manager for it. The real problem was I was so twisted over what was happening in my life, not knowing which direction it was coming from, I stood in my office one morning at 6 o'clock in the morning already at work. And it was dark because it's January, it's Reno, and it's snowing. And I just, and I stood up this clenched and said, God, get me out of here. What I forgot to say was, give me another job. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was fired. 
Okay. Two weeks later, he's doing his, what turns out to be the last drinking episode of his, at that time, career. And when he finally called me, and I was, I was hiding the ATM card. I was afraid he'd come in. I'd be asleep, and I wouldn't know he'd get the ATM card and get the money out of the bank and, you know, all that stuff. And he called me, and he said, uh, and I hear uh, slot machines, you know, you know, the machines in the background. So he's obviously at a casino. That wasn't hard to figure out. He said, um, as soon as I get the truck out of the uh, impound yard, I'm going to go to the hospital. Now, the back of my mind is like, well, why is the truck in the impound yard? You know? And I didn't ask that question, though, because I'm like, okay. And he said, I think I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, really, you think? <laughs> he says, uh, and then I said, do you want your insurance information? He's like, no, I'll call you later. I said, okay. Uh, we were already beat. It had been three days solid. I stayed right up with him through all that. So he went in the hospital. And, um, and I found out, you know, later on, they talk about me in the big book, The Alcoholics Anonymous, because I found out that so many people would get so focused in on the alcoholic that the family members get lost in the shuffle. It's so easy. People would ask me, well, how's my, my new name for him? It's stupid. And um, they, they asked me how he was. And I would just be happy to tell them, oh, he's an alcohol drug rehab at Dick Hospital. And, you know, I went through the whole thing. And um, it sounded so cool rolling off my lips, you know. And um, nobody ever asked me how I was. Nobody. You know. And uh, because I, you know, I was always accused of having a strong personality. Well, that strong personality survived. You know, it was my surviving tool. So apparently it was never an issue to anybody that how I was. And uh, when I went in the next morning to see him after he admitted himself, and um, I drugged, drugged the guy who hadn't had left for his honeymoon yet, I'm like, go on, you're going with me. And uh, we go down there, and here's this huge man, just kind of fetal position in this chair. And there was a, there's a phrase in the big book that I just keyed in on because that seemed to me to describe him. That's that pitiful, demoralized, I'm going to get it wrong, incomprehensible, huh? Incomprehensible demoralization. Thank you. I never get that right. I just know what it, I just know what it, what it makes me feel like. And my heart just went out to him. I thought, that poor baby. I couldn't throw him out. You know, poor guy. He's learned his lesson. And, um, you know, so we were off and running. He did his 30 days in the hospital. Actually did three weeks. Insurance made him day track the last week. And um, I was uh, unemployed, totally unemployable. When I got fired, I lost any sense of me that I ever hoped to have because I'd put so much into my work because, you see, there was nothing at home. So, therefore, my entity became what I was at work. And I could push him around at work. And I could kick a few cans at work, get away with it, you know, um, up until I couldn't get away with it anymore. And um, so he would come, once he got home, got done with a 30-day hospital program, he came home and he started getting on me about going down on And I'm like, why? Well, he didn't know. He just knew the words, okay? But he, and, and I find out later, and again, I, I have to relate to Vanji. I heard a lot listening to him talk at meetings, you know, and, um, or at campouts when he would do his little spiritual thing around the campfire. And I would find out information, you know, so I didn't want to miss a meeting because I might miss the information because he wouldn't tell me. And he actually wanted me to go to Al-Anon because he started going to AA meetings, but he didn't want to be in the same house with me. So he figured if he could give, you know, get me to go to Al-Anon, he'd at least get an hour and a half off. And, um, you know, and I went to all the families at the hospital, and they told me to go to Al-Anon. I'm like, why? And that's when with my first taste of counselors that like to help people but don't really have a clue what Al-Anon is because so, they don't go themselves. And uh, so I wouldn't go. 
And then when he starts telling me, I'm like, you're not just going to motivate me to go? I dig in my heels in and say, no, I'm not going. And um, he actually only had about 60 days of, quote, recovery time before I finally stepped in the doors of Al-Anon. And my first Al-Anon meeting was April 5th, 1988. And it took me a long time to remember how to go look that up because I didn't write it down. I forgot. I just remember what kind of a meeting it was. But I went because he was all over my back to go. And I was dutifully going to the family meetings at the rehab center at the hospital. And there was this one woman who would go, and her husband was like retread, and he had checked in the same day my husband had for his second go-around. And they would ask us, what did you do for yourself this week? And you know what? My mind went blank. I had no clue. And she'd sit there, and, and she'd always talk, and she'd talk about going down on me, and she'd always cry. And I'd think to myself, quit going. You keep crying. Quit going. This can't be good. And so, and so then she kind of got on me, you know, about going. I'm like, I don't want to go cry. I hate to cry. If I cry today, I'm going to get mad, you know. And, you know, so finally I went in to shut him up. And so the first thing I went to, I'm just going to tell you real briefly, it was the Alana Club in Sparks, Nevada. And it was the most, the best dive A could have ever had a meeting in. You know, and Alan on stuck in the little back room. And, you know, the folding walls, you know, real lots of privacy. And, um... Went to this meeting, and the only reason I went was because I found out we had books. Because somebody came into one of the family meetings with a book, and it was a 12-step book, our first one. And I said, you have books? I'm a very avid reader. And to me, that's a very tangible instrument that I can use. I only told me I had books. Okay, I'll go, you know. So I went to the meeting, and there was this little guy that was in the wrong meeting. And he was God. He was talking about his whatever he was saying, and all I keyed in on was, the next day, he was going to find out if he was going to get more shock treatments. I'm like, whoa, whoa, man, I am in the wrong room. He scared me. And uh, so I said, I'm not going back to that one. Now, this woman who'd been all over my back that kept crying about going to Al-Anon, we left because she, she took me and she apologized for the meeting. She qualifies for our program very nicely also. So I said, okay, not going back to that one. I don't even like the area. So we went to the next, the next week I went to what became my home group Wednesday night. By the way, my new home group is the Lake Norman Al-Anon Family Group in Mooresville, North Carolina. Okay. Best meeting because it's the only meeting. <laughs> so the next week I went to the Wednesday night meeting, which became the Wednesday night of winners in Reno, Nevada, Court and Rainbow. And the uh, topic that night was the uh, phone list. You know, and I don't know how you guys do it here, but... On the back of the meeting list, you have a little phone list and people that are, you know, have no problem receiving phone calls. And they talked about that as a tool of recovery, which takes about five minutes. But they drug it out for an hour. We left. She apologized again. And I'm like, all right, you guys get three. That's all you get is three times. You better go to the next go-around. I have no idea what they said the next meeting, but apparently it was enough to keep me coming. By this point, now we're in April. Now my husband's not happy. Now he's quite, Now he can tell me about it. He says, I'm not happy. I want a separation. I said, no. Now, I'm 5'7", shrinking a little bit apparently over the last couple of years. But I'm 5'7", and he's 6'2", and I never hesitated to go toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with him. Never even occurred to me he could go and flick me across the street. Okay? I'm not too great pride in that. And I heard Sue D. talking several times, and I related to a lot of what she has to say. And it occurred to me, oh, my God, I was putting myself right in, in the path of a freight train. Never even occurred to me. And so when he told me he wanted separation, one more time, never occurred to me, I'm going to get in trouble here, or I could. And I said no, because I'm still unemployed. 
I can't find a job that's going to pay me anything. And by this point, nobody in the industry would touch me because now I had a reputation. It didn't matter that what my skills were. It mattered what my attitude was. And so I had no way to pay the rent. He was at least working some little crummy job. And then he, um, he, he copped an attitude, and then he got hurt in the job. And this is about after a month after he said he wanted separation. I said no, so we just suffered. And um, then he didn't work for a week. So there's absolutely not a nickel coming in. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to share the dog's food pretty quick, you know. And I just said, you know what? Get out. He's like, what? I said, get out. And he did it out of anger. I didn't think it out. I just did it out of anger. I said, you're not even, you know, you're not even bringing any money in. And you treat me like this? Get out. Again, a pattern was establishing in our lives. So he moved. But then I gave him the rules of the separation. <laughs> How many alcoholics follow rules? Okay, haven't met one yet. Okay. That's just really sad. And so I went, to, I went to my meeting, and they let me cry about it. And this woman, who would soon become my sponsor, she came up to me, and she did a very, very dangerous thing. She said, are you going to keep coming? I looked at her and went, I guess. I hadn't really thought about it yet. She said, because you know if you don't, you're going to find another one like him, but he's going to be worse. I'm like, oh, that is not happening, man. So she scared me into coming, okay? Then they gave me a job because somebody saw that I needed to have, it wasn't enough to be there for me. I hadn't gotten there yet. I needed a job. I needed a reason to be there that was tangible. So I became the literature chair. Three months later, they promoted me to ultimate GR. Another month later, promoted me to GR and sent me to an area assembly. Okay, six months being into the program. And um, we, you know, we were still through, we were still going through the separation, and um, and that was the first time I ever became jealous of anything he that he did or where he was, and never gave a thought before because, frankly, they talk about me and understanding ourselves in alcoholism. I didn't come in here crying and just a victim. I came in here with an attitude and with an ego to match. Okay, and there's a few other words in there I hate to use, so they still send me shivers. I won't use them, and. Um, so I needed to have a reason to go, and I needed to be in service because, and service is a truly big part of my recovery. That's why I kept coming, because I made a promise. And most, most members of Al-Anon will die completing that promise, okay? And um, so, but I knew, I was trying to find, I knew where he lived. He, he ended up getting this little apartment about this big, okay? And um, it was a studio over in downtown Reno. And I would call him. And if the phone rang more than twice, I was extremely angry. I was outraged because it doesn't take that long to cross the room to answer the phone. So I knew he was out, okay? And we just, we, we just did the alcohol two-step. You know, he's sober the whole time, apparently. And um, by the end of that year, he said, you know, he, he came to me, and he always figured out, because I wasn't paying attention, he could two-step me into making a decision, taking an action. And later I'd figure out because and that means he didn't have to take responsibility. He goes, hey, Judy did it. So he was trying to maneuver me into a corner. And I was messing around going down and on every week, you know. And he tried to maneuver me in the corner where I said I, wouldn't, I didn't want to be married to him anymore. I enjoyed being married. I really did. Aside from all the alcoholic stuff, I mean, I liked it, you know. And I'd like to have that back one day if God deems it appropriate. And he said, he said well, okay, let me ask you this. If I file the papers, will you sign them? I'm like, I don't know. He said, okay, let me, let me ask this. And he, and he tried, he took a run at it like three times, and I wouldn't give him a concrete answer, because I'd learned in Al-Anon, don't do that. 
If you really want to frustrate an alcoholic, don't give him a straight answer. <laughs> Try it. But more importantly, it was for me, because I wasn't about to make that decision, because frankly, I didn't want the divorce. I wanted to see if we could find a way to create a new relationship. And I wasn't going to say yes, I wasn't going to say no, because I was tired of being the one of calling the shots. I took that job on voluntarily, but I wasn't going to do it anymore. And I thought, you don't want this, you're going to have to be the man with the waybills to take care of it. I'm not doing it for you. So he finally got to that point where he said, I'm done. I said, fine, you know, do what you got to do and I'll see what I got to do. And um, we were at a, uh, or not we, but we were both at the same function. It was a, um, I think it was a gratitude dinner. And they always have a dance. I hate dances. Never had good luck at them things. And I saw him acting in such a way that was so disrespectful to me. I damn near killed him that night. I remember I went up to the dance floor and got him by his earlobe and drug him off that floor. Six three. I'm five seven. Okay, he's got a few pounds on me. And I just said, I can't believe you're doing this. And I just read him the right act and I, I stomped off. And I tried a lot of things with him to, to shock him into awareness because you see these things would have worked for me. So it only made sense that it should work for him. Okay, he does speak English. He does know how to communicate, but you know, I never could get through that. And I found that I spent a lot of time prior to sobriety and definitely after sobriety came into our home of trying to get him to feel the way I felt so he would understand. Because you see, if he would, could, uh, could understand how I felt, he wouldn't do that anymore. I now know that that is an impossible chore because I, I will never act and think the way an alcoholic does. And for that, sometimes I'm grateful. And sometimes I'm not. By the way, I love alcoholics. You guys are fun people. Okay? Sometimes in smaller doses than others, but, you know, you're, you know, so I, I mean, I love alcoholics. You know, that's why I was attracted to one. The, the, the personality is wonderful. But I can't think like you, you know, and, and it will just never be. And so, you know, he finally filed the papers. I signed him and said, we're done. Now, through all of this, this first year, serious financial devastation hit us. Oh, pardon me, hit me. Did you see, I put everything in my name because he wasn't responsible. So he wasn't going to get anything in his name. So when it hit the fan, I'm the, one, I'm the ship that went down. And it took me a lot of years to do a lot of repair on that. And, um, which, uh, I'm through all that now. And, you know, so I started, I, was, I got very heavily involved in service because there was nothing else left to do. I was finally working some little crummy job, feeding the dogs, and trying to move along. So we were, first time, keynote, keyword, first time, we were divorced. December of 1988, the year that he had gotten sober. After that, within, I don't want to say like six months or so, he decided that, gee, maybe the grass wasn't so greener out there. And he wanted a reconciliation. I made him work for it, okay? I said, it's going to be a few carrots this time, the cost to get in the door. And we did reconcile and we remarried. He put the pressure on me. You see, I also heard in my meetings that I went to that... The, the statement had been, I don't know what they said. I just know what I heard, okay? What I heard was, we go through all of this with the alcohol. It doesn't matter if it's male, female, you know, whatever it is. That, and, and you go through all this stuff before, and if you go through the separation, and if you don't give them another opportunity, then you'd like somebody else gets to benefit from all your hard work. <laughs> that, to me, was God saying, let him come back, okay? I don't want anybody to benefit from all that pain. So we reconciled, and he said, I want to get married. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I'll do that, you know. And uh, anniversary was coming up. We had gotten married in June. And he put the pressure on, so we remarried quietly. My parents didn't talk to me for six months. And, um, you know, and then we moved to Sparks. 
towards then that was about you know it's like middle of april we get a phone call from his son's mother now he's been married a couple times before me and children and not always married and you know just a really you know real alcoholic thing and um but his this one kid he was getting his uh, butt whooped in school and he was his father's son except he didn't have a street sense you know and um my husband had been on his own at the age of 12 so he knew how to survive his son had no clue so he was getting his butt kicked he lived in um Dockerville. So she wanted to send him to Reno and uh, finish out the school year, you know, so that nobody killed him. And I'm like, oh. So he came up for six weeks. And I got to tell you, that was the longest six weeks of my life. I couldn't wait for him to get the hell out of town. His stepfather came to pick him up and like, dude, out later, you know, because I would argue with this kid. And it was like arguing with my husband, except he was shorter, you know. And it turned out he was getting into drugs and all kinds of stuff. I had no idea. I don't know what to look for. You know, you got to be falling down in front of me before I go, oh, I guess there's a problem. And, um, you know, and so that had set the tone for, and I had never, ever tried to get involved, you know, standing between my husband and his children, because I knew not to do that. And a lot of times he'd drop everything he had and flew over the mountain, you know, and go take care of some crisis. Another, there's always a crisis. And, um, but after that, I just said, no, I'm done. That's not going to happen anymore. And she tried to pull that stunt the next year, and I wouldn't let him. I said, no. We'd already been through so much in and out and separation, divorces and remarried and in and out again. And, um, and I, you know, it's, it was just a, you know, repetitive thing that, um, when he came to me and said, we had moved back into Reno and I believe we were married at the time. When you do that to me, times you forget where you were. And she called, we'd come in from somewhere. She called 11 o'clock at night and he's on the phone. I'm like, Oh, what is it now? You know, he gets off the phone at the same scenario. He said, she wants an answer. Can he come up? And I said, well, she doesn't get an answer. He says, well, she wants one now. And I said, I don't care. Just because she wants now doesn't mean she's going to get it. I've learned in Al-Anon, your lack of planning does not constitute an emergency on my part. Okay? So I said, I need to think about this because my heart just chilled. It's like the last thing I wanted was this kid in my house again. Because now he's another year older, another year wiser on how to get, get away with things. And I frankly didn't feel safe because of the type of people he was running around with. And if you know anything about the Vacaville area, you know what I'm talking about. You know, nothing is Vacaville, but hey. And um, so... This was before we had cell phones. Doesn't really seem like it was that long ago, but cell phones, we didn't have them. And he wouldn't leave the house. He was always there, and I couldn't get to a phone to call my sponsor. And I finally got a chance Sunday afternoon. I said, I need to tell you what's going on. And she says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, my answer is no, but I want to make sure that I'm not doing this on, um, I hate your guts to the kid. You know, I'm like, I'm trying to balance the scales of justice here, so to speak. And, um, so we talked about it, and I just knew that we were going to have a big knockdown, drag-out fight because it's going to become an issue between him and his son, who was like 14 at the time. And I thought long and hard about it, and I had been working on an established, establishing a relationship with God. So we finally sat down to talk. He says, what do you think? Because it's up to you. He's going to let me call the shots. I'm like, thanks. And I just looked at him, and, and for the first time, you know, I don't tend to be a real quiet person a lot of times. And I tend to get very uh, emotional and, and loud. And um, very, very quietly, I said, you know, I thought long and hard about it, and I, I can't do this. I cannot do it. I don't feel safe. And I will not come home and not feel safe. Okay? He says, well, you're asking me to pick, pick, to pick between me and my son. I said, no, I'm not. I'm just saying he can't live here. He says, well, that's, that means I have to move. I said, whatever you have to do. I'm just saying he can't come here. Because, see, before I tell him the rules, I would tell him how to do it, how to get done, who to contact, and how it's going to happen. This time I didn't do that. I just said, no, I won't live that way. For the first time in our relationship, and by that point we're running about eight, nine years at this time, I was becoming a little bit more important than what he needed and what he wanted. So he thought long and hard about it, and I heard him call 
that woman. And and he told her no. He thought long and hard about it. And he, he knew that if we let him come in, we'd be enabling him to continue that behavior that was going to get him killed eventually anyway. So why be a part to it? And I knew that was an extremely hard thing for him to do, to tell him no to his son, who was just the light of his life, such as it was for him. And... Um, and I was so proud of him. You know, he gave me moments being very, very proud of him. And my goal, it turned out he had that goal for a while, too. We just never talked about it. We wanted to be Mr. and Ms. Allen on an AA, okay? And we worked real hard to do that, I think, sometimes. And, you know, I was so proud of him to take that sound. I thought, God, there's, you know, maybe there's a chance here. This man might actually get a hold of what I considered recovery. And so, because to tell him no, I had a real hard time, you know, because... Um, I just figured I wanted him there. I liked him. He was fun to hang out with when he was being a good guy, you know. And he had gotten a motorcycle by this point. Okay, he got a hog during our first separation, and he had this big old Harley and um, opened me to another world, which was fun. And um, my husband had a problem never being home. Okay, if I wasn't home, he wasn't home because he'd figure, why should I be home? You're not there. You know, and I didn't understand that. I still don't understand it. And I'm thinking, well, Stillman, take care of the dogs. Hey, wait for me like I wait for you. But he wouldn't do that. One Wednesday night, I remember coming around. I was coming home after my home group meeting. It's about 9.30, quarter 10 at night. And we were living in, I, we were renting a house, a bi-level house in northwest Reno because it's kind of this hill and a windy thing. And when you come around and there's a two, two-car garage, it's around this curve. So you don't see the house about the last minute. And I'm coming around in the car and I have an Eagle Premier at the time. And he's ha- he has his motorcycle. Well, it was, you know, summertime, and so he's out riding. And I'm thinking, I'm in a really good mood. I had a great meeting. I'm peaceful and serene. You know, God isn't, you know, I'm sitting in God's lap. I love my husband. I pull around, and he is just pulling into the garage on the bike. And that's not a meeting night for him. Okay? So, of course, instantly, I knew he'd been out screwing around on me. I knew it. And I come up that driveway, and it's an incline, and I could have easily hit the accelerator. And not the brake. And he was right in my path. And for the first time, truly the first time, I had an absolute murderous rage in me. I wanted to kill him. Because one more time, he still wasn't there. It, it, was a, it was a big deal to me for some reason. And uh, I was angry, instantly angry. And I get out of that car, and I'm slamming the door, and he's like, what? I said, oh, I can't believe I said it. I said, you know, now I'm not going to tell you. You figure it out. <laughs> Alcoholics don't spend that kind of energy. They go on to something else, man. I finally did cop to what was going on. He thought I was nuts, you know. And I was. I was still going down and on, but, I, you know, it's just, it was just a struggle just living with an alcoholic that um, I'm going to take his inventory for a moment because I'm entitled. Um, he has a hole in his soul that he couldn't find a way to fill. He tried cars, boats, women, cars again, you know, whatever, jobs, and it just doesn't work, you know. They're not the solution because they're not the problem. And I come to find that out after many years and many, many... Uh, efforts of trying to help him and um, so in 1991 we got our second divorce my parents were very happy (laughs) we reconciled a year later (laughs) they were not happy I wouldn't marry him though done not gonna marry that boy again I'm not I married twice never got to change my name never even got to change my name you know so then he decided, he found out from another guy in Alcoholics Anonymous that there's this really great opportunity of doing commercial fishing in the Bering Sea. And you can be out for like, you know, work for six, you know, for 60 days and you get paid a portion of the, the, the haul and you just make all this big money. And I'm like, was he sober when he told you this? You know? 
And he just got all hyped up because he was having a very hard time finding his place in the legitimate working world, okay, and which became a requirement when he got sober. And not my, me, but, you know. And um, so he decided he was going to go do this fishing expedition. I'm like, oh, righty then. And um, so he went. He was gone for, ended up being gone for four months. He got back November of that year of 19, I believe it was 1992, the election day. I picked him up at the airport. And um, three months later, I had him in the hospital. He had massive bleeding. Now, had that happened three months prior, he would have been dead because they cannot take care of that on a ship out in the middle of the Bering Sea when they're fishing little fishes. And um, what happened was um, he was in liver failure. And, you know, his liver had been extended prior, and the good old doctor said that, uh, just cut back on your drinking, you know. And I just thought he just had a good. didn't bother me, but I didn't realize there was a liver situation going on. And within three hours of being in the ER, he had turned yellow. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. You know, by this point, I'd been in the program for, well, quite a while at this point. And I never panicked, when, even as I'm driving him to the hospital, because I already knew they wouldn't let me operate on him. So, you know, I'll just let them do their business. <laughs> so I already knew all the people in the ER. He, he's kind of accident prone from time to time. So I already got to know all the nurses in there. And... And he was throwing up blood. I mean, massive blood. I opened up my shower and my, you know, it looked like Janet Lee had been in it, spent some time in there. It was awful. And they had, him in the e- they had him in the ER for like 12 hours before they finally figured out they needed to admit him, you know. And he was diagnosed liver failure and then sent home after they kind of got him stabilized with, you know, loss of blood and what have you. And he was sent to UCSF at that point and to the transplant center, and he was put on the transplant list for a liver. Now, I laughed at the time because it was extremely ironic to me because we got in a huge fight about seven, seven years prior about me being a donor. And I had I cheated one day because he wouldn't sign my card for me in my, for my license. At the time, he'd put the little pink card, you know, in there, and into that anyway. And so some, some, we had friends over one night, and he was on the phone talking to somebody, and I went, oh, but while he's, not, while he's not paying attention, sign his witness for me. So he saw what I was doing, and he got mad at me. I said, what do you have a problem? It's mine. It's my shell. I can do with it, you know, have done with it what I want when I'm gone. He says, well, yeah, but when you die and you come back a second life, you're not going to have that organ you gave up. And I'm like. (laughs) And he was dead serious. He didn't want to be without them eyeballs that didn't work worth a damn anyway for him, you know. And so he was really, he was anti-transplant. He was anti-donor. Let me put it that way. And here we are 10 years later, and he's in dire need of one. He'd been given two years to live. Now, I know through all of that, I'm fairly calm, but, you know, I'm thinking, man, when am I going to catch a break here, you know? And um, we were kind of like together, not really together, and separate addresses, you know, it was really stupid. And from that point on, my motivation changed. I did things for him because I felt sorry for him, okay? Through all of the insanity and all of that stuff, any love that I might have felt had pretty, pretty much been put to rest. But his family was extremely um, um, crummy. And you couldn't depend on them for anything. And I thought, you know what? No matter what happens, this man does not deserve to walk down this road by himself. One of the first speakers I ever heard was Sue D. from Your Belinda talk. And in listening to her, and we were separated. <laughs> My husband and I were separated at the time. And, um, and you know, the, the anomaly was when we were together. And I, I li- listened to her talk. And when I was listening to her, I realized for the first time, it didn't matter what he had done. It didn't matter how he had done. It didn't matter who he had done it with. It just mattered what I had done to him. And it was like, what an awakening for me. And I left that conference, and I hauled butt over to his little house and said, I need to talk to you. And I promptly did a did amends right there, and I had done the first three, three steps. But I knew I needed to take care of that immediately because the clarity was there for me. And first of all, I said, here, listen to this. And we put that tape in. You know, thank God for tapes. And, um, and he just like went, 
okay. And it was a pretty powerful message. And, and I made my amends right then and there on the spot. And he goes, it's okay. I said, no, it's not. It's not okay for me to be like that. You know? And that started my, my inventory process. So I kind of got out of order and had to get myself back in order there. And um, so through all, of all, through all of that, you know, I had learned to, I had my support system, I had my sponsor, which, by the way, she was self-appointed because I wasn't going to get one, so she did it for me, which I'm very grateful for. And um, she also played tricks on me. Um, she would call me at different times, like weekends usually, because I usually work long hours. And she would call me at different times in the weekend and say, Hi, you talked to God yet? I'm like, damn. You know? <laughs> I could have told her yes. She didn't ever know any different. But, you know, I'm a true member of Al-Anon. I'd feel guilty if I lied. So I learned to talk to God first thing in the morning, man, because, you know, in the beginning I had made the mistake of sharing that I didn't think I needed to do things the way you said I should. Like, do your daily reading in the morning? Why? I don't get up in the morning. I don't do mornings. I do much better 11 o'clock at night. And so I try to do my stuff at night. It doesn't work. So because of that, she had to trick me into doing my business the way I needed to in the morning. And I do that today. It works for me today, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, when, uh, when I made the decision to help him and be a part of his life through that medical crisis, um, I was in the process of buying a home. And I took great pride in that. I worked my butt off for that home. I got qualified on my own, got the money on my own, had about four roommates. Me and the dogs gave up all of our extras. I didn't get any movies. They didn't get any bones, you know. And we suffered for many months to get that money. And I bought, bought, bought a brand new home in Reno. And um, he ended up helping me move into it, you know. And so um, within less than a year, it was 19, um, 1994, he got a phone call. And by this point, he had to move to San Francisco. He had to relocate to California and in order to be close to the hospital. And he was already on a pager at this point, And he was like second from the top of the list. And they really liked him. He's a very charming man. He's just an idiot, you know, when it came to me anyway. And, uh, but, you know, he, he, he was also, he wanted to live. You know, he never, he never had the attitude he ever wanted to live. He was just, you know, die young, leave a good-looking body kind of attitude for a lot of years. And um, when he was in the hospital that first go-around, they had put some stents in and just all kinds of nice things. Um, his little buddy, whose wedding was his last drinking episode, came up and they wouldn't let him in because he's in the uh, intensive care. And I ran into him in the hallway. He said, what's going on? So I told him. He said, man, what a shame. You know, don't, don't drink and you still have problems. And I didn't know what to say. I just said, got to go. And so I repeated this back to my husband. And he looked at me and I was so proud of him at that moment. He said, you know what? I could do it sober. I could do it drunk. Today I choose to do it sober. I'm like, yes. You know. He even had his moments of awareness. And so... Through all of that, there was still no call, you know. And it got to the point where when you get major holidays, you start thinking about it, you know, major holidays when so many things happen. You never want to wish ill will on anybody, but, hey, can we take advantage? And, um, you know, through, through all that, I continued to do my service work. I got very heavily involved in service. I was an alternate GR and a GR, and a, I did things at the district level. I became a district representative, and I was working into the uh, area chairman, and, you know, it gave me reason to be somewhere, you know, and gave me a responsibility, and I had, to, I had to fulfill those responsibilities. I will tell you that at one point I was going to quit service. I was a district secretary. I was pissed. We used to meet every other month. The, D, the DR, who I couldn't stand, decided we needed to meet every month without even taking a group vote. So, of course, I'm going to point out to her that, the wrong way that she did that little decision. And I was really angry, and I wanted to quit. And they had the delegates meeting that year in Reno, in Sparks. And it was an open meeting to the extent that you could go watch. You couldn't say nothing, you know, sit in the back of the room. And uh, my sponsor's a past delegate, and there were other several past delegates at the time living in Reno. So I went on the day, that day. 
and I don't have a clue who it was, but I was sitting in the back of that room, and somebody got up, and they were, ta- they were answering like a, a, you know, the floor question. And she looked right at me and said, I believe that when we in Al-Anon take on a job, we must fulfill it to the best of our ability, no matter how we feel about who we're working with. Looked right at me and said that, and I'm like, fine, got it. Thank you. <laughs> so I didn't quit my job. I stayed in there and finished it up. And uh, so he ended up uh, finally getting a phone call, and I got a phone call from him, said he was on his way to the hospital. And they'd found a donor from Reno, you know. So I called his sponsor. Now his sponsor, big guy also, I always call my husband a Matt wannabe because he's always trying to emulate Matt. And, um, but he'd never have his money, so I'm like, forget it, you're never going to succeed at this one. But um, Matt, Matt was a GM of a, uh, and a part owner of a car dealership in Reno at the time. And uh, at one point we needed another vehicle. And um, we were going through the alcohol, alcohol, alcoholism, vehicle problems, you know. And, and the credit, you know, was not worthy of anything. So we went down at the... Um, the car lot and we found a car that I really wanted you know and I'm thinking then I'm jumping ahead four weeks on how we're going to create the finance and who's going to take me you know with this whole thing and I'm just sitting there chewing on this bone in front of Matt's office and he looked at me and bless his heart that's why I love alcoholics he said Judy let go of the steering wheel okay I let go problem solved we moved on okay I learned a lot from that sponsor I called him sometimes to tell on him tell on my husband too and um so we got the phone call that he was, uh, there was a donor, and they were in the process of flying to Reno to finish up the final test, and they wanted him back to the hospital. So I called his sponsor, and I had no clue how I was going to do that. I'd been to San Francisco twice. I know the highway to get there. Once I get there, I have no idea where I'm at. And his sponsor said, I'll take you, and I'll stay with you until this thing gets through. So, you know, God provided an awful lot of things for me, an awful lot of wonderful people. We went there. And I tried to talk to him. We talked at like 1.30 in the morning before we left Reno. And I wanted to, tell me if you guys identify with this, I wanted to make sure we had everything said before he went in. I mean, that's a big surgery, you know. I didn't have a problem confronting it. I love confrontation. I enjoy confrontation, you know. Give me a problem, bring it on. He didn't, didn't want to do that. Just couldn't deal with the what-ifs. The what-ifs is what drives me crazy, so I'd rather deal with them. And we couldn't even have that final conversation. I'm like, okay. So we went to San Francisco, and we got to the hospital, and he was already in. They did the surgery, lived through it. He made it through it, too. They had him on the table an awfully long time. He developed heart problems, developed kidney problems, and just, you know, he was a mess. Um, Matt stayed for three days and left me on my own. I'm like, oh, my God, you know. And I did not call anybody in Al-Anon. I didn't call anybody in Reno. I didn't call anybody in San Francisco. I just stumbled my way through that city, scared the hell out of me. And I was so glad to get home, you know. And I was getting ready to make a job change. So I needed to get home and finish up and make my job change. So once they took him off all the major equipment, the respirator and stuff, and he could talk, then I came home. Well, they had to take him back in the next week to finish closing up the major tea they had cut in him because they were having problems with it. And they needed to get him off the table. And so he called me, and he was scared. But he wouldn't tell me that. And I, I couldn't see his face. I mean, I couldn't tell from the voice. If I'd seen his face, I could have, told, I could have been able to tell it. And he says, I need you to come to San Francisco. I said, why? He says, we're going to take me in tomorrow. And I'm like, what are they going to do? You know, brain change, you know? And uh, so they tell me what he's going to do. And I said, are they going to put you under full anesthesia? And he said, no, it'll be a local. I said, let me talk to the nurse. So put some nurse on the phone. And um, I said, what's going on? So they gave me the story. And I said, is there a reason why I need to be there? Wrong way to ask the question. I should have said, is his life in danger, okay? She said, well, if he wants you here, then maybe you should be here. 
What do you think my response was? No, not going to go. I was sick. And I couldn't have seen him anyway. I was sick. I had a cold. They won't let you near him. Okay? And because uh, he was being just loaded up with uh, immunosuppressants, so he can't be sick around people like that. So I didn't go. So he came out of the surgery, and it was like, it was just under minor stuff. And he called me, and he was so ugly, and he was nasty and saying ugly things to me. And every time he'd call, I'd answer the phone. I didn't have caller ID. I'd answer the phone. And after about ten times, he'd call, I'd answer. I called his sponsor. I said, Matt. And I told him the story, and he said, Judy, quit answering the phone. <laughs> it never occurred to me. Phone rings, you answer it, you know. So then he left ugly messages on my voicemail. And, and I attributed to the drugs that he was on. He remembered every word he said to me. Every word. He meant every word. You know, and, um, and, and I'll be honest with you. Today, if I had to do it different, I don't think I'd do it different. I still think I would do what I did, you know. Because I, it's not that I get any kudos in the, in the hereafter on it, but I still don't believe that no matter what he did, he deserved to walk through that by himself. You know, today if I see him, though, man, a different story. Um, in 1999, I was uh, elected area delegate for Nevada. And I had talked to him about this because we were together at this point. You know, he, had, he went through the surgery. He ended up moving back to Reno and up to Seattle and back to Reno. And, and he always wanted me to go with him. I'm like, no. And I just kept stayed put, same phone number for many years. You could always find me. You know, I wouldn't have been, we had a, a plan if I kept following him around. You know, so he's all over the place. And by this point, he's moved back to Reno now, okay? And he's living with me because I felt sorry for him. And, um, but I still had this thing about the, the, the words so reverberated in my brain, don't let him go because you got too much time invested in him, you know? And so we talked about me being a delegate, and I said, this is what I need you to do. I had a couple of dogs, you know, and, and a cat, and, and do this and that. And he said, okay. And then two months after, I was, after our area assembly, he was diagnosed as diabetic, which is a side effect of a transplant. And he was, should have been in a coma, but, you know, he defied the, the odds again and was walking around and driving with a sugar count of like 850 bazillion, and um, it was just unbelievable. So he was he's diabetic at this point, and they told us that would happen. He also had hepatitis, and it had come back, hepatitis C, and it had come back. And so he, they needed to deal with that issue too. And so uh, through all of that, I, he, they told him, this is what you need to do. And he was still smoking. He was a smoker. He wouldn't give it up, but he figured he's down to a couple, three a day, Circulation problems are in the family. Hey, what's a little diabetes to throw in the mix? And, you know, and I had, I had been learning so much about telling him no. He wanted to, one time he wanted me to sign for a Mitsubishi 3000 GT. <laughs> like we need that in Reno. I said no. He moved out a month later. And I knew when I said no, he was going to leave. I did this point, he'd done it so many times. I go ahead. And, um, you know, so it was real hard for me a lot, a lot of times to tell him no. But I was, learning, I was getting much better about it. And so... He became diabetic and would not take care of himself. And so I told him, I said, you know, God knows we have a long history here, but I'm, I walked down the road of alcoholism with you and the transplant and all the insanity that comes along in this over the years. I'm not willing to walk down this road. You know, you won't take care of yourself. And if you won't take care of yourself, I'm not going to take care of you. And you already, he was already running the risk of amputation. I said, I won't do this. Chopping body parts off because you won't take care of yourself? No. No, I won't do that. He moved, moved to Vegas at that point. Like me, you know. And um, I became a delegate. And every year that I went to conference, there was this big thing going on in my life. And Nancy B. from Colorado said, you know, Judy, sometimes when you become a delegate, you become a delegate because God knows these things are coming up and you need something else to stick.
stay focused in on and not these other things that are happening. And other people get to slide right through, and I didn't get to slide through. I got to take care of a lot of things while I was delegate. But it was wonderful. That first year we, were, we met in Connecticut, and we went to the Stepping Stones trip. You know, how many of you have been to Stepping Stones? Okay. If you get an opportunity to go, go. Okay. Now, I'm not a weepy person as a rule. And we went to this thing. There's, you know, four busloads of people and, you know, a bunch of them. They opened the place up just for us. And there were people walking around. It was kind of a soggy day, and they're sobbing. They're crying. They're like on sacrilegious, you know, this is sacred ground. And I'm thinking, it's real estate, you know? <laughs> I've been in the real estate industry for 20 years, but at this point, it's like it's just a piece of real estate. That's all it was to me, you know? And I just did not get the spiritual wave going on that apparently all the other people were getting. And I thought, maybe I do have a heart of peanut butter. I've been accused of that before, so maybe that is true. And I had an opportunity to meet a woman by the name of Bernadette. And she had been a friend. She met Lois about the last 11 years of Lois's life. And we met in Lois's sewing alcove, okay? Bill had, what the heck was it called? His, his office? Huh? Yeah, Wits Inn. He has this big building, bathroom, bed, everything called Wits Inn. What's Lois got? Little alcove in the house, okay? So we're standing there in the sewing alcove, and she's telling me about a lot of things. I'd already read some stuff about Bill and Lois, and uh, she told me the biggest thing about, Bern- about Lois that just really touched my heart is that Lois is very lonely, even when Bill got sober, because he was so busy doing what he did with AA. So she was always waiting on him to come home. She came into her own, obviously, after he died, and she became very involved with Al-Anon, okay? But she was lonely. She was always waiting on him. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm Lois in another century. You know, and that scared, that really scared me. I came home from that conference. Two days later, I had to put my 14-year-old dog down by myself because he's in Vegas. And I called him and said, I need to tell you something. Because at this point, I thought we were, you know, we, I think we still had a thing going, but I'm still not real clear on that one. And I just said, I need to tell you. And there's no discussion. I'm not going to debate it. I'm going to tell you what I'm telling you. I'm going to hang up the phone. And I said, I'm not going to live Lois's life. He went, What? <laughs> And I said, I'm not going to live Lois's life. I'm not going to keep waiting on you, pal. You want to do this thing? You better get your butt back to Reno because I'm not coming to Vegas. And you need to be here. I don't need you financially. I don't need you to buy a house. I got one. I got my money. I got my car. I don't need you for these things. But if you want to be a part of my life, you need to be here because I'm not going to wait like Lois. And he went, okay, click, you know. He never did come back. And that's okay because it was so clear to me what was happening, what I was doing to myself. Still waiting on him, you know, and I just really wasn't ready to do that. I didn't want to do that anymore. And so we started to split the things up financially, even though we had not been married for quite a while. There were still a lot of things to be handled. And everything went really pretty cool there for a while. And in between, I've been making a couple of job changes, and I'm just moving back up the ladder financially. And um, then he got really ugly, and I found out why. He met me, but she's in Vegas, okay? And he managed to get himself into some kind of situation I want to show of hands. How many believe that lying by omission is still lying? How many of you are members of Al-Anon? Okay. We had a real issue about that. And apparently he got himself dug in a hole, and he calls me and said, so-and-so, I don't remember the woman's name, so-and-so is going to call you, don't talk to her. And I'm like, oh, man, don't be pulling me into your stuff, you know, because we still always had this connection. It was always a connection. My sponsor's husband said when he would leave, don't worry, Judy, he'll be back. You're home base. That sounded really good there for a long time. And, um, you know, I was just, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, you know. He ended up turning really, really ugly, and I told him the last time I called him, I'm not going to say this on tape, okay? 
Um, but I told him, if I said, if you ever call me again, this is what's going to happen. Because he kept kicking me to the curb. You don't want me, quit calling me. Okay, I finally figured that out. I could just get sucked back into it so easy at the time, and not anymore. Through all of this, and I continued to stumble along the road of happy destiny through our program, I came to realize I was in a job that was killing me, because these people got very abusive, and I won't you know, give you the details on it. But my life got extremely stuck. And even though I was moving along in the service end of, the, of our program, I was so stuck I couldn't see straight. We took a vacation, and I got to go to New Mexico, and I found out that there's a whole new world out there, and I wanted my share of it. And there's people that I can work for that won't abuse me. And there's a life out there somewhere, but I need to be able to, I need to make a change to get that. So I sold my nine-year house, my nine-year-old house that I loved so dearly. This program has given me friends that astounded my father. Ran into a member of AA, hadn't seen for several years. He was not going to be, he was going to be without a job. I said, hey, you want to take a road trip? He goes, yeah, where are we going? So I told him, he goes, yeah, I'll drive the moving truck. Good friend of mine who had started the program in Reno, moved to North Dakota. I called her and said, how much vacation time you got? She goes, I got eight days. I said, book it. We're taking a road trip. Another good friend of mine who's in this room today happened to call me, and we were talking about what was going on. I invited her to go, and she goes, I'll go. I can be your cook. I said, my own cook on the road. We packed my house, everything I owned, my vehicle, rented a 24-foot motorhome and a 24-foot moving truck and a trailer to, to trailer my vehicle, and we moved to Mooresville, North Carolina. Took a five-day road trip. Without this program, there was no way I would have been able to utilize the tools or have the clarity what I needed to do, but every door opened the way that it should have. One of the things that I had learned, and I had to write it down, is that my will is a desperate urgency. God's will is a calm certainty. And every time I, wanted, that I felt that I needed to do something, I turned it over to God, and when the door opened, I knew it was time to go. I didn't have to force anything. I made a 2,700-mile move in November of last year. Don't regret a moment of it, and I've started my life again. And this time I wanted to do it with the tools of the program very, very much in the front of my mind. And I've been able to do that with an awful lot of help. And I'm involved in service, and, I'm in, and I have another sponsee that I'm sponsoring now where I live in Mooresville. And, you know, my life is just, um, it's moving. And I'm so excited. And I was telling a good friend of mine, I said, the only thing I don't have right now in my life is a man to screw it up. <laughs> but I'm working on it. Without the people in this program, you know, I, there's just no way I'd still be stuck in Reno. I needed to leave. You know, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't pulling a geographic. And I'm, you know, I'm really surprised how many people accused me of that. There was only a few. I said, it's not geographic. I don't expect my life to get better, but I need to make a change. I've been here 21 years, been on the West Coast forever. It's time to go. It's also amazing how many people shrink from change, even with somebody else's. There are a lot of reasons why people gave me not to do what I was going to do. One of the reasons I picked where I picked is because I want to get into the racing industry and Mooresville is the place to do it. I thought if you want to be a movie star, you go to Hollywood. If you want to do racing, you go to Mooresville, North Carolina. And so that's what I've done. And I'm, I haven't gotten into the business yet, but, you know, I'm working on it. And that's my dream. And I just and when I saw what the, what the theme was this week, I'm like, that's perfect. That's just perfect for me. You know, thank you for letting me be here to be a part of this dream. And people would tell me why I couldn't do it. And I'm like, you know what, I want to talk to you. Take your opinion down the road. Because there's no, there, I don't want to hear why I can't. I want to hear why I can. And that's the biggest difference for me. It's really easy to say why we can't. And I, want to, I just want to close with two things. I'm going to cry on the second one, so I'm going to do the first one first. Okay. This is one of the love gifts we had gotten. Some of you have probably heard this in my first conference as, as a delegate. 
Um, it says, Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped and I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been grumpy, nasty, or selfish. In fact, I haven't done anything that would be displeasing in your sight. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> From then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. That's my prayer in the morning. I want to tell you that the people I've been privileged to meet in this program, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no words. The travel I've been able to do because of being a delegate, um, unfortunately, it was a real hardship a lot of times because of work, etc. Um, sometimes the distance. The first year as a delegate, we, have, we do have delegates meeting you know, in all the regions, the southwest regions where this belongs. I had to go to Hawaii. Damn. True hardship, you know. Got to spend a few extra days there, do some touring. It was wonderful. And, uh, you know, in all the places that I've been able to go, and I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been here. I would hear people saying to this day, it still gives me chills because I don't like it. And that's why I continue to come to meetings about being grateful they were married to an alcoholic. I'm not grateful. I'm sorry. I'm not. If I could have picked a different way to live my life, I would have done it. But if I have to be anywhere, this is the place to be. Okay? And I will never be grateful that I went through the pain that I went through. I am grateful that because I went through it, it can be of service to somebody else. And, that, and that's the, the miracle of these two programs is just what amazes me, that we can be bleeding from a heart inside out, and it can actually help somebody else. I don't understand that paradox, but it does. You know? And so if I have to do it, this is where I'm going to do it. It works for me. But if I, got to, if I got to choose in later life to do it different, you bet I'd do it different. I wouldn't pick him. I'd probably go find somebody sicker, you know? <laughs> I want to finish with one thing. This is something I went through a period of, it was, I was probably going to become clinical depre- clinically depressed. And that scared me because I, even, you know, I have my own opinions on all that stuff. But I, I was, it was shaking me to the core of my soul a few years ago. And I was just standing what I felt was on, a, on, a, on the, just this edge. And um, people were talking to me about it. And I just said, no, I don't, want, I don't want medicine. I don't want any of that stuff. Just leave me alone and I'll figure this out, you know. And, and I just continued to do my meetings. And I, and I, I climbed into God's lap seriously about two years ago and I haven't left it and there's people in my life that are licensed to tell me when I'm getting out of line they just have to learn how to do a little bit nicer sometimes um, I can be a wonderfully compassionate kind loving person and also can be the exact opposite without too much effort even today so I continue to go to meetings do the best that I can and I hang on to some of the gifts that I've been given one of these things is my immediate past delegate who's Doug Jay from Las Vegas had come back from conference with this, and I printed it up because I needed something that I could carry in my purse because I would pull it out. If I didn't have it, I probably would have shot somebody had I owned a gun, you know. Um, but it says, and it, it just goes right with the theme, and that's why I believe God, you know, God's working in my life today. I had an awful lot of proof of it. It says, don't ever try to understand everything. Some things will just never make sense. Don't ever be reluctant to show your feelings. When you're happy, give in to it. When you're not, accept it. Don't ever be afraid to try to make things better. You might be surprised at the results. Don't ever take the weight of the world on your shoulders. Don't ever feel guilty about the past. What's done is done. Learn from any mistakes you might have made. Don't ever feel that you're alone. There's, there is always somebody out there for you to reach out to. Don't ever forget that you can achieve so much, so many of the things you can imagine. It's not as hard as it seems. Ah, oh, this is where I was losing. Don't ever stop loving don't ever stop believing. Don't ever stop dreaming your dreams. Thank you. <laughs>